Hello and welcome to the Software Engineering Unlocked podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michaela, and today I have the pleasure to talk to Dan Abramoff. Dan is probably the most well-known person in the whole front-end development online scene. Dan mostly works on React, a very popular framework for JavaScript. Dan is also very vocal about JavaScript, React, and development on his Twitter, as well as on his personal blog. Then is also actively supporting diversity in the tech space and recently started a side project next to his day-to-day -day job at Facebook. So I'm super thrilled to have Dan here with me today. Dan, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you. Hi. So Dan, you're actually a software engineer at Facebook in London. Can you tell me a little bit about what your day-to-day -day actually looks like? Yeah, so I, I work on the React core team even though most of the team is in Menlo Park in the United States. But we do have a few people in London. So I work on React itself, mostly the open source library that some of the uh, listeners might be using. Most of the things like fixing bugs in it, deploying new versions, working on new features, sometimes writing documentation, figuring out the migration paths when we change APIs. And just general kind of maintenance for, for, for the library. Yeah, so I actually read through your decades in review blog post, which I will also link down in the show notes. And there you described how you interviewed for Facebook. And so you described that you were at a conference and you gave a talk and there were also people there from Facebook. And one of the people from Facebook, you knew already from online collaboration and through chats. And this person asked you if you would like to interview right there at the conference in the hotel or something like that. And you spontaneously started to go through a whole interview loop right there in the hotel. So can you tell us a little bit more about the interview process itself? Which questions did they ask you? And how does this experience compare to a regular interview process at Facebook? Yeah, so the interview process really uh, depends on the exact role. And that's actually, at least like at Facebook, that's a pretty important distinction because if you apply for front-end engineer, that's an entirely different interview process from applying to a software engineer, even though internally these positions are exactly the same. So once you get in, it doesn't matter which one you were hired with, but the interview process is very different. So the one that I went through was front-end engineer process, which is, it is, I find it to be a bit more practical in terms of like what questions get asked because the regular software engineer process, it, it is a bit computer science-y and I'm like, I'm not super good at those questions, but for, for the front-end interview, we ask things that we think would be relevant to actual like application development with JavaScript. It's mostly, so in terms of length, I can't say the exact length. It, it also depends on the office and, and the exact like role title, but I think it's something like four hours. So I, I think like the usual interview process is you first go through a, kind of a screening interview that is like a coding interview, but it's remote. That because usually like we need to go through that first before we bring somebody on site, and then the on-site process is something like four hours, and it's usually two coding interviews. Each each interview is with a different person, and it takes roughly forty-five minutes, I think each. And there's uh, a couple of coding interviews, one interview about the past experience, 
and one interview that is more kind of design architecture kind of interview, but all of those are tailored to to front end. So that's pretty much what I went through. And in this case, I was just lucky that there were <laughs> four different people from Facebook at that conference because there were speakers. And yeah, and we, we, we do use whiteboards, but we, at least in the front end interview process, we don't use the typical like computer science uh, whiteboard questions. So it's not about using some weird data structures that aren't relevant in front end, but it's it's more about things that you might encounter. And so we we do use whiteboards in the sense that we don't give you a computer to write code in, like so you have to write on paper or on whiteboard. But we also try to treat it like just as a draft. So I think it's good to practice with a whiteboard, but it's like sometimes whiteboard is annoying, right? Like you can't copy and paste and just stuff like this. But this is also why we try to keep the questions relatively small. So we don't expect solutions to be more than like uh, 30, 40 lines of code for most questions. So the whiteboard is also useful just to kind of communicate ideas and just discuss like trade-offs and what are the different things you could do or different problems uh, you might encounter with a solution. Yeah, actually, I think whiteboard sometimes feels too intimidating because it reminds people and well, I'm generalizing here from myself, it reminds of a classroom setting, right? So where you have like a teacher that asks you to be in front of the class and then you to solve something. And if you can't solve it, it's very embarrassing. I think maybe that's the connotation that we have with whiteboards, because apart from that, I really love whiteboards. I mean, my office is full of whiteboards. And I love to write on them. It's just that in the interview process where you're in a very vulnerable position, I think it becomes a little bit of an intimidating thing. But what I wanted to ask you as well is, are you right now involved in hiring at Facebook? Do you do, you do interviews? And if so, what question do you ask and how do you determine if a candidate is a good fit? Yeah, so I do code in interviews. I don't do experience or architecture interviews, at least not yet. <laughs> So it's it's just coding. So I obviously can't give you the actual questions that we use. But I think in general, the, the things that we look for are a solid understanding of the language. That's one. So we expect that people know JavaScript, people who apply know JavaScript pretty well. And we don't actually test for any like libraries or frameworks. We don't ask React questions at all. We assume that if you know the language, you will figure out like any library. But if you only know a library, then you're going to struggle with like other libraries. So we kind of expect you to understand the language. So it's uh, like in terms of language, it's like things like understanding variables, closures, asynchronous programming, control flow, functions, and how all those things kind of work together. And then in terms of data structures for front-end interview, again, we don't expect you to like understand any super computer science things that, that don't occur in front end. But some data structures do occur in front end. So like trees, for example, you don't see like, I don't know, red, black trees or something like this, but you do see DOM trees or like React element trees and just understanding how to work with trees, like how to kind of traverse them, what you could do with them is is important. And also just like another example is like a lot of interview training questions that you might see on the web are about 
what is the performance of this code? What is the complexity? Like, is it like O of N or O of N squared uh, and so on? So we don't expect people to like necessarily memorize those, but to the extent that it is practical, like it's, it's valuable to know those things. So like an, a practical example may be, here's some code that maybe it takes uh, like a uh, hundred milliseconds for like a thousand items, but then if there's uh, 10,000 items, then suddenly it takes like two seconds. So what is the problem with the code and how do you fix it? And so you can kind of like, even if you don't have full kind of theoretical, like if you don't know all the correct terms, but you have the right intuition about where the slowness occurs and why, and what is the approach to fixing it and how to use like objects or arrays or appropriate data structures to fix the problem, that's fine. So that, that's what we're looking for. So it's uh, it, it's kind of interesting because like in front end, it's very important that you care about user experience. Like that's, that's another thing we're looking for, but sometimes it does involve some of those fundamentals and we don't care that much that you're uh, great at theory, but we want to see that you can apply those principles in practice. So also what you mentioned in your blog post was that you were really nervous and that you had some difficulties actually swapping two items in an array. And somehow the interviewer encouraged you and she gave you the confidence that you could actually move on. So she helped you to move past what I would call a little bit of a blackout, right? That was caused by the setting and your anxiety of the interview. And I find it really good that you are outspoken about that and that you say something like that openly. I mean, interviews can be nerve wracking and they create unnecessary anxieties. I can totally relate to that. And I think one of the reasons why I'm self-employed right now is because I don't want to go through any dreadful interviews. But how can we make the interview process less intimidating and remove some of the biases from the interviewers and make them also more inclusive? Yeah, so I'm not I'm not like an authority on the subject. Uh, and also like people, I've seen people get pretty nervous during the interviews. I think like one thing that helps is that's why we have several, right? So it's rare that everybody uh, has exactly the same feedback. So this is why we uh, we keep it so that we have multiple interviewers. Every interviewer has to submit their feedback before uh, they see feedback from others so that their feedback doesn't get biased by what the other interviewers say. You can't like change a decision. But then uh, you also, like once all the feedback is in, you also look look at it as a group and try to pick out similar themes like, oh yeah, it seems like there is kind of a knowledge gap in this area, but maybe they do uh, really well in this other area. And then it's kind of balancing, like do it. ultimately what we want to figure out is, it's not like, is this person a great programmer, but like, are they going to be successful in this environment? And so sometimes, it may be that maybe the person is very good technically, but they don't communicate well. And so this is going to be a pretty big problem because we expect people to communicate a lot, especially as they like progress in their careers. So if, I think like another tip for interviews, at least like for Facebook, I, I, I don't know how people interview at other companies, but we really care that you explain what you're doing, kind of explain your thinking process that you listen to the hints. So like <laughs> the interviewer is on your side. The interviewer wants you uh, to to do well. And sometimes we kind of give hints like, hey, like maybe this is not 
the right direction? Or like, are you sure about this? What are the other things you considered? And sometimes people listen to them very well, and that that gives us a feeling that yeah, like this this person is like can work in a team. They understand when they are being asked to do something, or they are like they're being challenged. And sometimes people just don't listen at all, and it's like, okay, well, what if there is a work problem and we're trying to communicate something and this person doesn't hear us? So that's also important is just to have a clear communication, clear thought process, and kind of both listen to the interviewer and also explain the way you're approaching the problem. So I know that for many people working at Facebook, Google, Microsoft is one of their big dreams. Was it also for you that it was a year-long dream to work at Facebook? Did you think about that or did you envision yourself, especially given that you were working with React? Did you think Facebook would be a good place for you at least for a while? Yeah, so I I think early on in my career, I didn't really like care about big companies as much. So I am originally from Russia. So there was like a Russian company that I wanted to work uh, at, which is kind of like a Facebook's clone, but they had a really polished product. And I think the thing that compelled me about it is that its team was actually not big. So it was like 10 or 15 people who were uh, actually working on the website. I don't think I, I felt like I really wanted to work at a big company at the time. And so I didn't really consider Facebook at all. And later on, so after I started like putting out some open source work in the React ecosystem, I did get contacted by a Facebook recruiter. And that I did feel like I would want to work here. But then, again, not because it's like Facebook, but because I knew people who were working here, right? Like Jing Chen, who was like one of my interviewers. And she's the person I met at the conference, but also like a few other people who were on the React team. And like, even today, I feel like if I was not on the React team, like there are things that I like about Facebook. There are things that I like less. Like I don't like open floor spaces very much, although I can also see why Facebook is is kind of doing that. But I think what really kind of keeps me here is just there's so many smart people to learn from and to like, I, I feel like before Facebook, at least like in my career, I would always kind of max out like Maybe I started the company, I kind of reached some of the thing that I'm doing and then I'm not sure what what is the next, like, how do I keep learning? I just keep doing the same thing. And at Facebook, there's always going to be someone like smarter than me or more talented than me or just somebody who, who just does things I haven't learned yet. And so it's really, if you like learning, it's it's really fun to be around. Yeah, yeah, I had the same feeling at Microsoft that there is always, I mean, at lunch, you go on lunch with uh, some of your colleagues and you could learn something, right? You're like, wow, I didn't know about that. <laughs> yeah. So, but what was also happening at Microsoft quite a bit were reorganizations, for example. And I was lucky that it wasn't really affecting me. So we were reorged um, quite a bit. But it was always the whole team that was reorged, and suddenly we were instead of research, we were part of research and development, and then we were uh, a part of Visual Studio, for example. But somehow, they well until the end, <laughs> they you know they didn't take us apart or change our mission or something like that. But it happened for many, many, many other teams. And so, is that also happening at Facebook? Are people reorged? You know, moved on to different projects without actually volunteering to do that and what would that mean for you, for example? Yeah, so that does happen as in any large company. Uh, it's not super common, but it's also not super uncommon. So 
We use uh, Workplace as the primary means of communication. So Workplace is like a, uh, a version of Facebook, but for work. So we use, like most of the communication happens on Workplace Messenger and, and the groups, which is like Facebook groups, but again, for work. And so there is a group called This Week in Reorgs. <laughs> okay. So if you, uh, all the posts announced in Reorgs uh, get reshared to that group. So this is, this is kind of funny. I, th- I think it's like one post per like three weeks, something like this. But it's a huge company. So this doesn't really happen like completely out of the blue. <laughs> so usually when there's Reorg, it's because something is not working and they're trying to fix it by like shuffling people around, shuffling teams around. Maybe there's like a new director who wants to consolidate things differently. I wouldn't expect the React team to suddenly become like reorg the way because we we actually have like there is actually a React org. <laughs> so this this includes management of React team really like the team that's working on the new website. So Facebook is like rewriting the website and React and Relay. And so our org did get moved a few times, but that's actually, that's kind of interesting because it got moved from, it used to be closer to kind of tooling, but it got moved to being closer to the application. And that, that does make sense because it's a called product infrastructure. And I think that's that's a really important part of kind of Facebook approach to like UI tooling and React is to keep it very close to actual like developers using this stuff so that we don't kind of invent things in the vacuum and just like release it into the world, but that we actually like talk to people using this stuff. And if it's not working out, like it doesn't go through like five levels of like management chain, but it goes directly to us. And that gives us like that gives us a good reality check. Okay, yeah. So well React, especially React 16, is now with the MIT license and so it's a proper open source software. And do you feel that sometimes there is a balancing act between what you have to consider for, you know, the benefits of the company and then versus the benefits of the community, or are those interests really aligned and very easy to combine? I think it depends on the period and like what what we want to do. I think like one way Tom, who's like my current manager, so one way Tom has been putting it is that you can imagine there's like a stack of things that are only important to Facebook. And then there is a stack of things that are only important to open source. And then there is a third stack, which is like things that are important to both. And even if we just keep working on the third stack, like it just never ends. <laughs> so it's like there is enough intersection that we kind of we can keep going. I think the bigger split is actually not between Facebook and open source, but it is between serving like legacy existing code versus paving the way for like improvements that are not incremental and making sure that we don't get stuck in the past because of the existing code. And like we care about existing code a lot, but also at some point, like you need to make a choice that you kind of move forward or are you you stuck doing the same thing? And I think that that is kind of a bigger split. Sometimes we have periods where we're all about maintenance, fixing bugs, improving documentation, like doing all those things that serve existing user base. 
and existing code. But sometimes we we kind of focus on innovation, but then we tend to neglect the like the existing features a little bit, and it's just we kind of switch between those cycles as as we polish new things and kind of get them out, and then they all go through this uh, same life cycle. Yeah, especially backwards compatibility can really bite you, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I feel that you are really fundamental to the React community. Some people even believe you are the original creator of the React framework. Well, on your Twitter profile, the first thing that you state is, I did not make React. So apparently you have to even, you know, say it out loud that uh, people don't project that to you. But still I have the feeling that many people are projecting many different things onto you. Do you sometimes feel that there is too much weight and responsibility on your shoulder, especially when it comes to the community and, you know, how the community behaves and things like that? Yeah. <laughs> Do you have an idea how you got into that position? Why are people projecting things onto you and uh, why do they think you are responsible? I think it's it's a bunch of things. So one is I, w I was there pretty early on, maybe during the like boom of React, so like 2015. So I built a bunch of stuff for myself because I just, because it didn't, didn't exist. So like I, I helped add some features to React Router. I helped like, have a few libraries, worked on hot loading, which which is like a way to edit the page and see changes reflected in real time without like refreshing the application. So working on a bunch of things that people found interesting and I was working on them just because like nobody else was and it was still a very early time in the ecosystem. And so I also answered a bunch of Stack Overflow questions. And I think people just saw like people come in a bit later in the ecosystem, they just saw my face everywhere because I was just like commenting because I was there early. And I think that that is part of the reason. The, the other one is I just, I think I worked on projects that people found interesting or like inspiring or eventually confusing, <laughs> like with the Redux, which was supposed to be a proof of concept for a conference talk and not really like the whole thing. But I think people, like I, I'll take that I'm pretty good at making demos and I'm not really good at like original ideas. So what I, what I try to do is, is I try to find smart people with really good ideas who are struggling to kind of explain those ideas and why, why those ideas matter. And I try to popularize them because I think that these ideas deserve that. And I think people respond to that. So another part is just like, you remember who you learned from. Like, I remember people I learned from like 10 years ago, even though they don't blog anymore. Or like, I used to read like Eric Lippert's blog on C Sharp. And like, I don't care about C Sharp anymore. But like, I remember him because I, I learned from him. And I think people tend to remember people they learn from. So I think that's that's another reason that people kind of remember me. I think also sometimes it's like the person who takes on responsibility is responsible. And I have the feeling that if you see something is broken, then you are the person that takes action and uh, fix it or be part of the solution. And I think maybe that's also, well, one of the reasons why that's happening. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think? Maybe. I, I don't know if I <laughs> fix enough things. I kind of feel like lately in the last two years, I'm just, kind of coast in 
like I, I used to I used to read like all the notifications and like fix all the issues in my libraries and for the past year I've completely unsubscribed from everything that's not react I don't even check issues like I felt bad about it for a while but then like yeah like I've done my work and I I feel like I just can't focus on these things right now and I need to cut them out and hope that somebody else will pick it, pick it up and I'll just work on the things that I I think are important to me today but not necessarily be a good maintainer anymore. Well, I don't think you have to make a life commitment out of everything that you do. And I mean, you're stepping away from something means that there is space that somebody else can fill up, uh, which, you know, gives opportunities to others as well. So I think it can be a good thing as well. It's always how you want to see it, right? Yeah. So it's, uh, yes, but it's also kind of like a Tom Sawyer move where, you know, like when when he says like, Oh, it, it's it's so amazing to paint this fence, and then like he finds people to paint the fence for him. But it's still, especially like if those people are in the same position that I was, which is like I wasn't working on this full time. It's just like a side thing, and I also had a job, and so it's is kind of like unpaid labor. And if I get paid to do open source and I hand off tasks to somebody who doesn't get paid to do that, then it's it's like sure maybe that will give them some opportunities to like speak at meetups or like at conferences or like get a better job in the future with like improve their portfolio but also like not necessarily and they're not necessarily going to be able to take advantage of it and like the whole system where you're gonna have to do it is well when you have to pick up this optional work just to kind of be competitive in the marketplace is also kind of weird so i don't know how i feel about that Yeah, I'm a mother of two and I know exactly what you're talking about. I know what it means that you cannot put in all the hours that you want, especially with the contributions outside of the regular work. There are just simple, plain limitations for some people on how much work they can put in. And yeah, I really like that you are so considerate of all the different aspects and well, everything that you said really makes sense. I think that there are many different angles to a story and I think that people are free to pick up and make something good out of it for themselves. For example, I thought a lot about what it means to take responsibility of your own career. And I think I wasn't particularly good in the past of doing so. I mean, I put in all the work, but I made also mistakes when promoting and showing off my work. For example, during my PhD, I blogged on the university website, <laughs> which is the stupidest thing that you could do because I'm not owning the content. And you know what happened? After a while, they just deleted it, right? So they were like, oh, she's gone now for a few years. Uh, let's delete it. So everything that I ever wrote about the systems I implemented is not there anymore. The good thing, there are official publications and all that. But my point is that I could have, you know, advanced my career, definitely could have advanced my career if I would have been more, you know, more caring for myself and thinking about making a more conscious decision that actually this should be on my own side. Mm -hmm. And similarly, during my time at Microsoft, I didn't let the outside world know what I was doing. I was very focused on the work inside. But after a while, you know, it's it's not a good strategy because nobody actually takes care of you. It's really your responsibility. And I think it's similar here, right? In open source software, there's so many different motivations for why you could pick it up. You can learn, for example, if you want. You can also promote yourself. But yeah, I, I see the negative sides to it as well. So sometimes people feel 
taking advantage of. And so I, I think that's why it's really important to step a little bit aside and really think about why are we doing that? What are the outcomes that we would like to achieve? And how can we align that with what we are doing? Well, but having said all that, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about software engineering practices, especially at Facebook, because that's what I'm really interested about. So I wanted to know if there are some company-wide practices and if you have insights into that. Um, For example, one of the slogans for Facebook is move fast and break things. And also one of the Twitter comments was that people actually mentioned that it has uh, changed a little bit. It's something like uh, move fast and break things, uh, but have a stable infrastructure or something like that. So do you have a particular way uh, in which software is developed at Facebook? And what do you think it means move fast and break things? What happens at Facebook and what's the impact of that slogan? Yeah, well, so the official answer <laughs> is that yeah, that we we don't we don't use that motto anymore. It works for some things, but it can have pretty bad consequences for other things. Um, <laughs> I think, and I think it's true that it's there are parts of this mindset that are still left, and there are parts of this mindset. I think like why this may not be a good approach is so what one thing that we've started doing i guess like several years ago is like whenever you make change that affects like things like privacy or security there's a lot more or even like accessibility there's a lot more cross-functional review that like in the early days that wasn't the case right so like in the early days you can just change stuff and as long as like one engineer accepts it it's it's live to production so i think there is like we've tightened that a lot. So it's harder to like make changes to those uh, critical things without getting like a good review from like uh, policy and security and uh, privacy and all of those orgs. But for changes that are like relatively safe, I think that mindset is still um, like partially lives on. And the most kind of valuable part of it that I see is just that we don't have a strong code ownership process. So what that means in practice is that if I want to fix something like a, maybe in a product that I don't own, right? Like maybe I want to I see a bug in Instagram or like I see a bug in workplace or just in comment section. And I, I work on React team. I don't own any of these services, but as long as I can get like somebody where not necessarily like the owner, but like some other engineer approve of my change. And as long as it doesn't like concern itself with uh, things that are risky, like privacy or security, then I can I can ship my fix. And so, in practice, this means that people are empowered to pick things up. Whereas, like in in some other companies, you have to get a review from somebody who's like in this file. Like you have to get a review from somebody in file called owners in this directory. So we don't have that. We usually like if. If the code is so like fragile that it's so scary to change, then you should have better tests. And if if you really want some team to kind of look at the changes, then you create automatic things to kind of add them as like optional reviewers or like you create things on top, but it's still we kind of expect engineers to rely on just social behaviors a lot more. So for example, if I'm fixing a bug in Instagram, I won't like just ask my coworker to stamp my change, but 
I will look at the blame for that file and I look at like the history and say, oh, this this person changed that line. They might have context on this. So I will message them on the workplace messenger and say, hey, like I'm changing this thing. I think this is the right fix. Can you take a look at it? And so it's expected that even though you like you are given a lot more freedom, it is kind of on you to ensure that like to actually test the change, to pick the right people, to review it and to to commit it and then to just be there so we call it like supporting your changes which just means like you commit them and you watch the graphs or you notify the person who's on the call for this product hey like here's like a thing i i changed just in case something blows up like uh, i'm the person responsible for it so it's like teaching people that here's like you have a lot of freedom but you also have this responsibility and that's something like at first you're gonna mess up and you're gonna like Maybe not take the side down, but maybe like you are you might like mess something up. Hopefully, like automate the system, sketch it before it goes out to all users. But we also expect you just to kind of learn to be responsible with your changes and learn how to be there and to build those connections. And then the thing is that actually encourages a lot more collaboration in the future because like the next time maybe you want something from like Instagram, you can message that person who reviewed the change and say, hey, like maybe you can help me with this or like, so you you build all those like social connections within the company and then it's a lot more efficient than always going through like posting in groups or like official channels is everyone is encouraged to create their own kind of network within the company. And I think that's that's actually pretty cool. Yeah, well, so you mentioned testing a little bit. So I would like to know how does testing work at Facebook? Do you have like one company-wide strategy or does testing depend on the kind of part of the software that you are testing or maybe the team that you're working with? Also, are there some manual tests happening or penetration tests happening in Facebook? And uh, if so, how does it look like? So it, it really depends on, yeah, on the product and the, again, like there's, like things like security or privacy that are kind of separate and there are like teams who are actively like trying to break it. <laughs> we have this shift in left, which is like if you if you draw kind of a graph of like a different stages where issues may occur. So it's like there's like code review, there's like automated static analysis and like lint, lint checks and then there's like code review and then there's like out to a subset of users, out to all users. And then like the further you go to the right, kind of the worse it is. So like the stages at which you discover the issue, right? And like the worst one is like when people actually find it. So it's it's like the scale and the the thing that like those teams are trying to do is shift the outcomes to the left. So like figure out, okay, we didn't catch this thing, but how do we catch all the things of this class the next time? And how do we catch something that was caused only after the commit by chess? How do we change it so that it would have been caught uh, before the commit? Or like, how do we make sure that this this whole pattern is impossible because the API doesn't allow you to do a bad thing? There are like things like security and privacy where like those mechanisms are very strict. But then for like a lot of just regular product development, Individual teams have like a lot of freedom with how they test stuff. So some companies do have very strict policies on like test coverage and like component unit testing. Like every component should be unit tested. We don't believe in that because like in a lot of cases, bad tests actually slow you down more than like product issues. 
And they also, for example, like you do some internal refactoring of some component and it doesn't affect the behavior at all, but a bunch of tests break because they assumed that whatever the shape was doesn't change. And so that that's like an example of a bad test. And so we try to minimize those and we try to make sure that our tests are mostly kind of end-to-end. We have a few custom frameworks around making that easier and like making those tests less flaky. But we try to make sure we test the actual behaviors that people experience and not like internal implementation details because we really care that it's easy to change, that there's a lot of plasticity in the product code and bad tests really hurt that plasticity. So I did a study probably, well, I thought about it yesterday. I think it's almost 10 years ago and it was about testing and how Eclipse, not only the IDE Eclipse, but the whole ecosystems of plugins and plugin systems. Well, how people would test those modular systems. And at that time, a lot of the people were focusing and advocating for unit tests. And integration tests and system tests, and especially UI tests, on the other hand, were often seen as a bad thing. But over the years, especially last few years, I see more and more people actually shifting their mindset again. And now people advocate and implement more end-to-end tests. And I think it's because they better answer many of the problems you just described. So do you see this shift also happening for testing at Facebook? Yeah, I think like we even had the same problem with React where... We were, we were basically rewriting React at some point. That's already done. That was React 16, pretty much almost fully backwards compatible rewrite, which is like not not very common. But we had a bunch of tests that were testing internal modules. So like one problem is like when we talk about unit testing, people have very strong opinions, but what is even a unit? Like that's such a meaningless term. Like you can say anything is a unit. So like is React itself a unit or like is one mo- one file in React a unit or like a group of files? I don't know. And so, but what we found is that at least in this rewrite, we like we actually had to replace most of the implementation completely. So it was like written from scratch, entirely different architecture internally. And so tests that were written against specific files, it was like testing the internal API of that module they were useless because they didn't actually correspond to anything that the user would see. And also if you read it like three years later, you're like, okay, I understand what this test is testing for in terms of this module, but why is this the behavior? Like what does it what is what is the problem it was trying to solve? Why why was this behavior added? And so you still have to find in like Gitblame, here's the pull request that added this test and this behavior, and here's the actual issue it was trying to solve. And so the problem is like, maybe there's another solution to this issue, but even if you solve it in a different way, the test won't tell you that. And so we had to rewrite a bunch of tests to only use public API, which like in many cases just look like the original reports that like reported the issue, they had examples, here's the thing that's broken. And so we turned that into a test. And so now we know that Whatever the solution we have, if we change it to some other equivalent solution that also solves this problem, the test will still pass. And that's like that's our aim is to be able to throw away the implementation, completely rewrite it, and still have the test pass in. Or another thing we do sometimes is we have two copies of the implementation. So, and that's also what we do at Facebook. We we don't use branches, like not 
we don't use long living branches. We use branches only for like just just to get something reviewed, like 300 lines, but then they merge it. And so we, we rely extensively on feature flags to enable and disable functionality or to switch between different implementations. So we might have like some module version one and some module version two checked in. And we have a dynamic check that says like, if it's like, maybe it's out to like 1% of users and then 50% of users, and we see if there are any regressions and metrics. And then when we're confident that the fix actually works and it, it doesn't make anything worse, then we'll switch it over to 100% and delete the old implementation. But you want the tests to, to be able to test both at the same time. So that, that's why like we try to not include implementation details in, in these tests. Yeah, so it's really about writing robust tasks that are, well, as you said, implementation independent. Yeah, I really like that. So one of the other things I wanted to talk with you about is your new side project. Because you started something, it's called Just JavaScript, right? And it's an email sequence. At least that's my latest information. And I'm actually subscribed to this email sequence. And this uh, little email course is directed at people that have JavaScript knowledge, but aren't feeling super confident with it. And so the, the emails have information about fundamentals of the language and you help people correct uh, some of the misunderstandings they have about how JavaScript actually works. Well, I, I find this project really fascinating because it serves a niche in a market that isn't saturated right now. For example, also on Twitter, somebody asked, how do you fill gaps and holes in your knowledge when you're no longer a beginner? but you haven't quite reached the intermediate stage. So I'm, I'm reading her comment right now. She says there are so few resources aimed at that level. Well, and I think that just JavaScript is somehow an answer to that need, right? So there are tons of resources out there for starting uh, JavaScript or uh, other languages. And they tell you, for example, what is a variable and how to assign uh, something. And so very basic things. And then when you are moving on to more you know, advanced topics, there isn't, there isn't so much information anymore. And it's really hard to get this very deep understanding. There was also another person on Twitter asking, for example, what are some of the architectural patterns that you should use for React? Well, React isn't a JavaScript, but it highlights the same need and information need about answers to questions that are not easily found on blog posts or uh, somewhere else on the internet. So is that exactly what you want to do? Fill those holes for intermediate uh, developers? Yeah, that's pretty much how I described it. There's like a few different ways to pitch it. So like one way to pitch it is that indeed there's a lot of beginner resources that are like oversimplifying things because they they want to kind of get you like excited about the language. They want to kind of get it started. So they, they try, to, try to make it a bit simpler than it really is. And then there's a lot of misleading there. It's, it's sad. Like if I tweet it, then people will be like, wait, what, why don't you fix it? Well, that's what I'm trying to do. Right. So there's a lot of misleading information. If you just read like Stack Overflow questions about JavaScript, like every time I read them, I just get really sad because it's, there is so much wrong info and I'm not saying this to promote my course, but like, just watch out if you're reading Stack Overflow. Unfortunately, it's like questions from 2007 when like it was a wild west in JavaScript and uh, a lot of answers are either misinformed or they're just not not the way to do things. It's just they happen to work by accident. And it's it's just so much work. Like I, I just give up. Like 
I do have like moderator privileges on Stack Overflow, so I can actually edit some of those, but I, I just give up every time I look at those because it's, it's just so bad. And so there are some high quality resources for like advanced developers, but I feel like, yeah, there, there is a gap. And like, I imagine my target audience as uh, like a person who has maybe just graduated from a coding bootcamp and they were taught JavaScript in three weeks, React in three weeks, Node.js in three weeks. And they're like, okay, now you're ready for a front end job. And maybe like they, they do have some knowledge, obviously, if they are given a code base and a relatively scoped task, they would probably be able to complete it and figure it out with some guidance or mentorship. But the thing is, if they don't have a very strong mental model of how the code works, they probably do have is like a mental model that's off in a few places that's like not entirely correct. It's just like if you add more things to a shaky foundation, like everything kind of falls apart. And I see this a lot with React where people are like, I don't understand React. And if you if you keep asking them, like, okay, well, what is the problem you're running into? They're like, oh, this thing doesn't behave as I expect. But like this thing is not React. This thing is JavaScript. Um, and people sometimes say, oh, React is just JavaScript. And that's, that's kind of annoying to like, I can see how this can be uh, seen as like demeaning and kind of, if you struggle with JavaScript and you're told, oh, it's just JavaScript. Well, that, that wasn't helpful at all. Like that's actually like really, really annoying to hear. But I, I, I still wanted to use that name to kind of reclaim it for, yeah, it is a bit confusing if you come from a different language or if you were taught in a way that doesn't actually match how JavaScript works. But this is something we can fix because it's uh, it's actually not that complicated. It's it's just you need the right structure. And I think I'm I'm taking some liberties with this course. So it's it's really opinionated, not in terms of like what features they use, but more in terms of how I present it. I put a lot of uh, kind of emphasis on the the idea of a mental model. So when you read the code, I don't just want you to understand things in theory, but I want you to kind of feel the code, to like to see the same connections that an experienced developer sees when they read the code and to kind of operate them in the same way that like an experienced person would operate. And so the focus of the course is really to to help you kind of see these mental models that are inside like an expert's head, but they're opaque to you. And so that my, my job is to extract them and to to kind of help you see them. And the, the first form with like emails is just kind of a proof of concept, but I want to make it a lot more interactive where uh, you actually like interact with those mental models as like things you can touch and kind of play with and get a sense of, oh, so here is what JavaScript is really like uh, in the conceptual sense. Yeah, that sounds really fascinating. I mean, I have so many questions now popping up in my head that I want to ask you. <laughs> so let's start with one of the last things that you just said, which is uh, you want people to be able to touch the thing, which creates a very visual picture of your course in my head. And in one of the first emails, you talked about boxes and you asked if I ever thought about the variable as a box, which uh, I never thought about it like a box, but somehow that stuck with me. So now I'm thinking, how can a variable be a box? And if it is, how can you move it? What would be the properties of that box, right? And yeah, and what do you do with the box and things like that? So 
Will there be some visual aid for the course? Will there be a screen, uh, for example, and will I see things and will I be able to interact with those? And uh, what will be the visual way for me to learn about JavaScript? Or wh what else did you mean by interaction? Yeah, so the, the funny thing is we're actually not going to use boxes. So a lot of people were taught boxes in like universities and stuff. For those who did have like a classic computer science education or like some courses also do that. But I've made a explicit decision to kind of do it completely differently and some people are not happy about it especially like people with like 15 years of experience so they're the ones who are messaging me oh this is a completely wrong way to teach people <laughs> like whatever I, I like that I think that if people are you know opposed to it then you're doing something right yeah. here <laughs> it is controversial but I I'm gonna see I think there is some sense in what I'm teaching so Yeah, so there's uh, in the current kind of proof of concept stage, there's like there's pictures and there's animations. So Maggie Appleton is a co-creator of the course and she's uh, she is an illustrator. So we meet with her and like we sketch things out together and she, she makes a, those gorgeous animations and, and illustrations for the course. So it is pretty visual in many ways. So in, in this first situation, it's just like, animations and diagram exercises but i really envision it as a much more interactive thing in the future so i'd like to move the exercises into the lessons which you can't really do with emails but you could do with web pages so i'd like to them to be a part of the lessons rather than something at the end of the lessons and i like them to actually be interactive in the sense that you don't like just look at an animation, but you actually, like you drag things, you kind of connect them together. And uh, there's this translation layer where like it says, here's the code, do the thing to this to this live thing, like do whatever the code says. And you're like, oh, okay, here's, here's what assignment operator does. It like connects these things together. Or like, here's what this thing does. And so it's like, it's really like translating to, learning a way to translate from code to this visual environment and then back. And eventually you don't need the visual environment because it's you just understand the mechanics and the mechanics become like a part of your mental model. So that's that's kind of what I'm going. I don't know if that's, if that's going to work out, but I hope so. Yeah, yeah, really fascinating, especially when you said that you present knowledge to somebody that isn't as experienced that normally only a very experienced developer has, right? So, well, I love teaching and right now I'm giving code review workshops that I totally enjoy, but I also taught at university and community college. And even though I've been happy teaching for several years of my life, I know that the most challenging thing is to extract tactic knowledge. So knowledge that you are really, really familiar with and then to, you know, put it Yeah, put yourself in the shoes of a beginner and help them to understand it. And I think, as you said at the beginning, some of the JavaScript courses are abstracting things. They leave concepts out or hide something or they are not explaining everything because they are aimed at making it easy for the person to start understanding. And I also recall the time at school. Well, I actually graduated from art school before I started to study computer science. And the first six months, they were really difficult. Because I didn't have any mental models about computers and, you know, how programming works and how things interact with each other. And it really took me a very long time until things fell into places, right? And so before I, I understood what's actually going on, I was just doing the exercises without understanding them. 
Do you know what I mean? Like, for example, I was writing Java methods without understanding why it's working. I just did it and it worked and I was puzzled and, you know, piece by piece, it started clicking. But right now I wouldn't be able to, for example, reverse engineer that process. So uh, it would be hard to be that person again and, and to know what I actually struggled with. So how, how do you do that? How do you extract your tactic knowledge and how do you know which holes people have and which concepts uh, they may be misunderstood and how do you know how to correct their mental models so i i wouldn't say that i really have the answers i think like because i didn't have any formal kind of teaching experiences i i feel like unqualified to do it but i i still try to do it and kind of do my best i know what people don't know just from experience so i i try to uh, kind of think of knowledge as a tree of ideas and there's like with dependencies between them so like to understand this to really understand this you have to understand like this and this and this and so like i have this kind of mental like mental model of mental models a meta mental model of what like the tree of javascript knowledge is like with this course i kind of lean back on the fact that i expect the person to kind of know javascript already so I can take shortcuts and like I can use a function before I really explain, like I don't have a chapter on the functions yet, but I kind of use them in simple ways, assuming that the person kind of knows what a function does. But like if I had to design this course for a complete beginner, it would have been like designed very differently and that's a lot harder. Like I'm not qualified to do that yet, definitely. But one thing that, that, that I've noticed is that like you need to really let go of assumptions. This is very similar to kind of profiling code when you're trying to figure out why the code is slow and you think it's like, oh, I need to optimize this, this, and this. But if you run it with the profiler, it's actually somewhere you did not expect. Like that's the bottleneck. And I think with learning, it's kind of similar in that you might think that here are the things that the person misunderstands, but there's actually something that you completely missed. Uh, and like, it may be very fundamental. So I found that uh, every time I thought, oh, this is obvious, everyone knows it, you test it on people, no, people don't. That's why I have these like exercises and like diagrams. So I, I can get a sense of, did people get like whatever I was trying to show? Like, can they make those connections themselves? And like, if, if it seems like it's working, then I'll keep building on top of that. And that's also why it's been amazing to work with Maggie, because so she's an illustrator. She doesn't have like a JavaScript background. She does a little bit of JavaScript, like to the point that like she does write code, but she doesn't have a deep knowledge. So it's been super helpful to kind of bounce ideas uh, off of her and kind of ask like, what, what do you think this code does? And then see, oh, this is your mental model. One way I've been thinking about it is, especially for people who already kind of know stuff, it's like, it's, it's like a decision tree where it's like they learn all these concepts and then there's like, there are forks in the road where you can misunderstand something in like one of three ways. Like it's usually not many ways to misunderstand something. It's like, maybe they misunderstood this, maybe this, or maybe this, or maybe they're right. And so for each of those forks, you're going to have, like you're going to come to different combinations of like incorrect understanding. And then if you're at least aware of like each of those forks and each like how those misunderstandings will manifest themselves, you can test them. So you can make like you can make an exercise that that shows whether the person understands that particular thing or not. And then if you run it on like enough people, you just gain enough insights to see where those forks are. 
and then those are the things you're supposed to teach. Yeah, yeah, I really like your meta mental model of mental models. So I I think you are really onto something here and I'm definitely looking forward to reading more um, of that email course and also um, looking forward to the course that will come out of that prototype. So one of the last thing I wanted to ask you is your thoughts on improving diversity and inclusion in tech. I know we are switching gears completely uh, right at the end, but I would like to know what would you advise to somebody that wants to do some impactful actions to make tech more inclusive and diverse? What do you think? So I think if that person isn't a part of like minoritized groups that like we want to in include, then they can step away and try to amplify the voices of those people who are a part of those groups. Because, and that's actually something I haven't been very good at. I think in a lot of cases, it's tempting to kind of, like if you're like a white male, you're going to want to see yourself uh, as a good guy, like, oh, I'm, I'm going to help all those people or whatever. But really, it's just your presence and your taking up of the resources that like makes it more difficult for other people who don't have your network yet, who don't rely on your connections, who don't have the kind of support. In terms of hiring, where we hire people who we know, and in many cases, we know people who we know like socially, and we know people socially who kind of like we do things together with. So in many cases, they kind of look like us or they're like part of connections that is like this is creating this effect where if you start with some advantage, then it has this cumulative effect. So I'm not saying like that every guy should like disappear from the internet. That's not what I'm saying. But I think there is some misguided point of view that the best thing you can do is like to do something. Whereas I think in, in some cases, it's like, it's more about stepping away and giving other people the spotlight that they deserve and helping them kind of make connections with each other and figuring out where it is that you that you reinforce the existing structures and how you can like avoid doing that yeah yeah i like that i like especially the last one which is again it's a little bit about how we think about things right extracting and reverse engineering what's actually going on and i think that especially Especially what you said about amplifying, for example, is something that can be done quite easily and could have a big effect. So is there something that we haven't covered in that interview that you think we should uh, touch on? I don't know. There, there's been so <laughs> so many topics. I feel like we've covered everything that was kind of on my mind. I don't know, unless, unless there's something that you, you're still curious about that you want to talk about. Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. We covered quite a bit. Well, one thing that I think many listeners would be interested in is your opinion on the future of React and Redux. And we haven't really touched that. So maybe if you want to cover that for a few minutes, what do you think? Where is everything heading towards to? Yeah, well, I, I, I don't have a magic crystal ball, so I can't really answer that. I, I always find it confusing when people ask me, like, what is the future of the guy? I don't even know if I'm like we're going to be alive tomorrow. So how, how, how can I know the future? But I think people underestimate how unpredictable things are. Like I would, I guess I, I would be confused if somebody was confident and like <laughs> what was going to happen. But I think like for React, we're uh, we've tried to be like as transparent as we can be about what are we building and why. So there's like if you're curious about those things. You can always go to React blog. So that's reactjs.org slash blog. We try to post about all big updates, all like upcoming features. 
I guess the big one is building support for concurrency into React, and that that means a lot of things. And it's still not quite ready, so we don't talk about it a lot. But there's a few talks from React Conf that again you can find on the blog that talk about this. But I think the overall kind of big picture of what we're trying to do is like the the big idea of React is that you you want to describe things declaratively and with the full power of the language that you're using. And I think in that sense, React has been hugely successful because it's not just React, like the adoption of React itself or like even the React Native, but all the next generation libraries like SwiftUI in iOS and Jetpack Compose for Android, they're following not exactly the same approach, but they embraced this declarative user interfaces, which was a very controversial like five years ago. So I think React has largely succeeded at that. And the thing that also differentiates React from other libraries, like I don't want to name them so that people don't fight me on Twitter, but I think an intentional design choice of React is that we embrace JavaScript and we embrace the host language in the sense that if you want to have dynamic logic, in JavaScript saying like, if this condition, then show this thing, or like operate on UI as a value, as a first class citizen and say, here's like three things I want to render, like map them and like use the expressiveness of JavaScript to do that. Uh, And we let you do that. And we don't just let you, this is the way to use React. We don't have like a separate template language that is like less expressive. So I think that's another choice that React makes, which some people agree with, some people disagree with. But you can see that like SwiftUI and Compose are also making that choice. So maybe there is something there. So I think that those are the areas in which React has been successful. But one downside of this paradigm is that it's very developer-centric. So like sometimes when a user goes from one page to another page, you don't want to immediately switch it because it's a bit jarring to like see a blank screen for a split second and see things kind of fill up and it's just like, it's, it's not very pleasant. It might be easier to wait a little bit for the user so that it's not as jarring. But the React programming model kind of nudges you to always express changes as like what should be on the screen at this moment. And so it's it doesn't really give you any control over time. And so you end up flushing changes as soon as they happen. And that's not always the best experience. And this is also related to animations. Like sometimes... You click on something, you want to see something different, but you want to, like the previous thing to kind of animate gracefully before you transition. But because the React model is like, if this show this, otherwise show that, then it has to kind of jump. And implementing animations is a bit annoying and it doesn't match the paradigm exactly. So I think that's uh, like the next stage of React is just giving it more control over time. And maybe not even necessarily giving the developer more control, but being more considerate of when we show things on the screen and why, and how does that match the human uh, computer interaction research that shows us that showing too many things, like too many things flashing is bad. Like you want to kind of bash them together and you, you want to try to use animations where appropriate. And how do we make the library kind of still keep the declarative paradigm, but operate on time in a way that matches how humans perceive time and how how to make them like have a nice experience using their product. 
And so that's what this like work on concurrency in React is all about. Okay, yeah, it sounds really exciting. And, and it also answers one of the questions people wanted me to ask you, which is when not to use React. So yeah, your answer has been very insightful. That actually brings us to the end of the show. I really want to thank you for taking the time to talking with me about so many different topics and sharing your ideas and your thoughts. Dan, thank you so much for being on my show. Thank you for having me. You asked really good questions, so I appreciate that too. That was a, that was a really nice interview. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed another episode of the Software Engineering Unlocked podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And I'll talk to you again in two weeks. Bye.